I'm going to be reading this morning uh, our scripture for today, uh, Revelation 3, uh, 14 through 22. This is Christ's letter to the church at Laodicea. So starting in verse 14, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your wretched nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear, what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we thank you for your love for your church, your churches. Jesus, that you have given your life so that the church might be built, and it is you who are building your church. And God, it's not just about Laodicea, it's not just about Meadowview here gathered today. Lord, as we sing, I think of many churches who are no doubt gathered in Ukraine. Maybe singing the same songs we're singing about your greatness and about trust and our faith in you. A faith that that bombs and guns cannot shake. And so, God, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray for the people who are innocently caught amidst the evil. Lord, we know that's happening right here in our own community as well. Evil is being committed against others. And so God, we thank you that we know your love. And we know that your love will conquer all evil. And Lord, that is where our hope lies. And so today as we consider these these powerful, powerful words, Lord, would you stir us? Spirit, would you work? Bring conviction where conviction needs to be brought. Bring comfort and hope where comfort and hope need to be. God, today, would you give gold to the poor? Would you clothe the naked and open blinded eyes? Uh, We're asking you to do a work. We pray it in the name of our Savior, the name that is above every name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, today we bring our seven-letter series to a close, and though many of you have expressed interest in continuing on into the book of Revelation, we will go no further than chapter 5. Next Sunday, my intention is to consider chapters 4 and 5 as we kick off our Missions Emphasis Week. I know it gets more exciting after that, uh, but we're going to go on to some other things. But today, my task at hand is Jesus' letter. Uh, to the church at Laodicea, probably the most well-known of all of the seven letters, one of the most quoted of all of the seven letters. And since uh, Nathan has already read, we'll begin with the introduction in verse 14, as in all the letters Jesus introduces himself, but here he introduces himself as the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And so, so what does Jesus mean when he introduces himself as the amen? Have you ever wondered why sometimes during a service, somebody will say, amen, 
or at the end of our prayers, when we're done praying, we conclude most of the time with an amen. Or sometimes even at the end of a song, we'll sing that, that last little line that you find in the bottom of the hymnal, amen. Why? What are we signifying? The word amen is a way of signifying. It is a way of signaling that something is true that something is completely right. And so if you appreciate a truth that is read or, or it is something that is spoken or prayed or sung, it is good, it is right to say, amen. That's what we learn from the scriptures. And so Jesus is amen personified. He is what is completely and wholly true. And he goes on to say that he is, he is faithful and that, that he is the beginning, or, or we could put it this way, the source of all things, of all the true things. Jesus is the source of those things. And, and it's an important title or description because we need to be able to trust Jesus. And we need to be able to trust his words that he speaks to us. What Jesus has written to these seven letters, we need to be able to trust it. What Jesus has preserved for us in the 66 books that we know is the Bible, we need to know that we can trust these words. They're dependable, they're reliable, they're faithful, they're true. Amen. They are true. And so as we continue in the letter to the church at Laodicea, what we're going to discover is that Jesus' truth, as he introduces himself, will stand in contrast to the Laodicean self-deception uh, that he will assess. And that assessment begins as he repeats this familiar phrase in verse 15. You can see it there, I know your works. Those, those flaming eyes of Jesus see through our facades. Those flaming eyes aren't fooled by our hypocrisy, our, our play acting. We can fool all of the people around us, but we cannot fool him. He sees us completely. And so Jesus' first assessment is he knows that the Laodiceans are lukewarm. Here's what he says. He says, you're, you're neither hot or cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. And so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And this is the verse that makes the letter probably the most well-known of the seven. This whole idea of Jesus spitting or spewing or vomiting you out of his mouth phrase. And so uh, there's, there's much historical debate that exists here about Jesus' assessment of them being lukewarm. And so I'm gonna let James Hamilton, and he, he quotes another guy, Colin Herner, describe the historic situation of Laodicea. Here's what they write. Hierapolis, uh, which is about six miles from Laodicea, I believe to the north, it's a town that was famous for its hot springs. So the waters are, are as hot as 95 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, to the south a few miles from Laodicea, by contrast, Colossae, the same town that the letter of Colossians is written to, they had waters that were cold and waters that were pure. Well, the site of Laodicea appears to have been chosen because it's at a crossroads, not because it had its own water supply. It seems that Laodicea received water from a remarkable, and this is the quote of historians, a remarkable aqueduct of stone pipes. Archaeological evidence indicates that the waters around Laodicea were afflicted with the calcium carbonate content uh, that resulted in the waters being impure and even emetic. That is, they would cause vomiting. And, and to be perfectly honest and, and clear with you, there are some archaeologists who challenge that evidence and have challenged that evidence in recent years, but it's not unheard of to find these types of aqueducts in the Roman Empire. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna have Amos throw up a picture here. That's me uh, on an aqueduct. Uh, this is actually in Israel. This is just outside of, of Caesarea Philippi. That's the Mediterranean Sea behind. Uh, but on the top of that, what you, you, what you cannot see is a, an aqueduct system. And this was unearthed and discovered. This, this system ran, uh, I think, about 12 to 14 miles from Mount Carmel. 
And it brought fresh water from Mount Carmel down to Caesarea Philippi where Herod had uh, a, a giant mansion for himself and all sorts of things that were there in that particular region. And so, so that would be an aqueduct system that the Roman Empire built. So it's not unheard of to have something like that. Uh, show that next picture. This is what archeologists have discovered at Laodicea, uh, a piping system, something ancient. That many again believe and speculate these are some of the pipes that could have brought uh, water from Hierapolis, water from Colossae to where Laodicea was. And so, if if this is historically accurate, then Jesus' words would immediately resonate with the Laodiceans. They understood the hot, they understood the cold, they understood the, the lukewarm. And as they are now identified as the lukewarm, Jesus wants to spit them out of his mouth. Now, a classic face value understanding of this is lukewarm means that that they've become passive, they've become indifferent. And the thought process goes, well, if you're cold, then you just have no interest at all. And if you're hot, then, then you're on fire for Jesus. And if you're lukewarm, it's just kind of a, eh, you know, whatever. Maybe today I'll serve him, uh, maybe I won't. But I don't, I don't believe that is the main point that Jesus is making here. I believe that can describe their attitude, uh, certainly can describe our attitude from time to time, but I don't think that's exactly what Jesus means when he assesses their lukewarmness. Their lukewarmness is defined by Jesus in the next verse. Verse 17. Verse 16, great opening illustration, draws the Laodiceans in, but it's an illustration that we can easily read into more than Jesus intended. This is why it's important we recognize that his assessment continues into verse 17. Verse 16 doesn't work without 17. What is 17? He concludes that the Laodiceans are self-deceived. You say, Jesus says, you guys say, this is what you perceive of yourselves. I'm rich. That's what they said, the Laodiceans, I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. The perception of the Laodiceans is we're doing just fine. We don't need anything or anyone else. We've already talked about the historical water situation. Let's add a little detail about their culture. I appreciate those of you who, who listen during these long paragraphs of history. I love history. I love this geography stuff. I know some of you, you can't stand it. So thank you for bearing with these paragraphs that we've given during these different weeks. But, but for those history buffs out there, the Seleucids founded Laodicea in the mid-third century BC on the side of earlier settlements. The location was advantageous for agriculture, herding, as well as strategic for trade, and the city prospered immediately. It was at a major intersection on highways, one that would run from west to east, from Ephesus to Iconium, and then on into Syria, and one running northwest to southwest from Smyrna and Sardis all the way to Colossae and Adelie. Uh, Starbo writes in AD 25, he extolled the rapid growth and, and wealth and the soft black wool that it produced. Tacticus records it was severely damaged from an earthquake the city around AD 60 from which it recovered from its own resources without any help from Rome. And, and if you've listened to the different and the, the various histories that we've given in these churches, most of these churches were affected by that same particular earthquake. Uh, most of these cities had massive effects from that. But Laodicea was different. Why? They didn't ask Rome for help. They rebuilt their city on their own. Why? Because they had the resources to do it. Because they were well off. Its extent ruins reflect a large city, impressive public buildings, including two theaters, monumental gates, a, a colonnade main street, and a stadium built in AD 79 to honor the Emperor Titus. The god Zeus had been traditionally worshiped in Laodicea along with other gods, but at, at, at latter times, a local cult to Domitian was established and a Jewish community existed for a long time in Laodicea according to several anecdotes recorded by Josephus, a historian, another by Cicero. Paul's letter to the Colossians mentions a Christian community in Laodicea 
as part of his circle of churches in the early 60s. And so this isn't the only time Laodicea is mentioned in the New Testament like some of the other churches have been. Laodicea is mentioned in the book of Colossians. But the point I want you to understand, history teaches us that the Laodiceans were wealthy. They were prosperous. But Jesus here is teaching us that their wealth and their prosperity have deceived them into believing that they have everything they need. And I mean, if there, if there isn't, an, if that isn't an American way of thinking, I don't know what is. We, we in the West, we tend to measure our happiness, our contentment, our success by wealth, by things that, that comfort us, material stability. And that can be, that can be defined sometimes when I, when I have enough money and I have all that I need, oh, man, God is so good. Blessed, hashtag blessed, right? But, but when, when I'm struggling or maybe I don't have enough money or there's suffering that comes into my life, what comes out of my mouth? God, what are you doing to me? Why is this happening to me? And so their lukewarmness has to do with a deceptive sense of self-sufficiency. The Laodiceans were unaware of their true condition, that is, their spiritual condition, that, that by grace, understand by grace, Jesus is revealing this to them in the letter and he just rips the Band-Aid off. He says, you do not realize you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. I can just see some of them responding, how, how dare you insult me, a proud citizen of Laodicea? I'm none of those things. Well, this rip the band-aid off statement introduces the next point. A point regarding Jesus' compassion. It's his compassion that offers a truthful word to challenge their self-deception. But, but it's also his compassion that offers them and us a path forward beyond the self-deception. Notice verse 18, Jesus offers them this counsel. He says, so I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you can see. This invitation has its roots in Isaiah 55. Like many of the other letters, there's, there's connections to the Old Testament prophets. And so, so to better understand, I do want to read from Isaiah 55. If you want to grab a pew Bible, it's 576, or you can just listen and follow along. Isaiah 55, again, page 576 in a pew Bible. Here, here's the cry that's given. Come, this is, this is God speaking. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Jesus isn't here in Laodicea all of a sudden into commerce and capitalism out to make a buck and says, why don't you buy gold from me or clothes from me? No, no, he's freely offering these things to them. This is a, this is a picture of grace that's rooted in this act of grace that God speaks of in Isaiah 55. But notice what Jesus offers the Laodiceans. He says, refined gold. Why? Why does he offer them refined gold? Because they're poor. He just said, that's who you are. He offers them white garments. Why? Because they're naked. He offers them salve to anoint their eyes because they're blind. There's some that argue that there are even historic connections to these very examples 
that Jesus uses, and that, that may be true to the point. Some say that there was a, a special salve they used in Laodicea for their eyes, and that there was the black wool that's already referred to that, that, that they had, but they didn't have the white garments that Jesus would offer. And th- those things may be true, but the true point and the main point to get to is that they were spiritually bankrupt. And Jesus offers them his riches. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus offers them white garments because they were naked and they were hungry. And Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they they will be satisfied. We're blind to our own blindness. Isn't that true and so troubling? How blind we can be, and Jesus offers sight to see. Not only our our sinfulness and not only our blindness, but his substitutionary, gracious and merciful and good and loving work on the cross. Jesus says, come see it. What Jesus does in this verse is, is provide us some beautiful pictures of the gospel of the good news of what it means in the call of the gospel to come to Christ. Jesus in grace grace offers them what they truly need. They they don't need more money. They, They don't need more comfort. They don't need greater material prosperity. They need Him. They need His Spirit to to once again fill them and bring spiritual prosperity to their souls. Because the money's not enough. And so Jesus offers them instruction in verse 19, very clear instruction. Be zealous and repent. But notice how he frames that. Verse 19 actually begins with this. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. Get get back to that compassion that Jesus has for his people. It is love that offers reproof. It is love that offers discipline. Christians, we need to understand that. Parents, Kids understand this particular truth. Love doesn't cave in. Love doesn't give in to what somebody simply wants. Love corrects. Love offers instruction because love isn't short-sighted. It looks to eternity. The author of Proverbs gets this so well when he says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and don't be weary of his reproof because the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father reproves the son in whom he delights. I just want to say personally, as I thought through this and was considering this this week, how grateful I am uh, for this Meadowview family um, and how you understand this truth. We don't have to pull punches here when it comes to opening up God's word and sharing what scripture says. Uh, Because you're not offended by the truth. I mean, there may be a moment of conviction and sting that comes with it, but I'm so grateful uh, that you're willing to receive the truth of God's word as just that, the truth of God's word. That conviction can be painful. That conviction can be, be grie- grievous in our own hearts and in our lives. But, but I, I appreciate that you understand that that comes from a heart of love, love from our Savior and love from, from a pastor, love from those others who would teach and help to shepherd and encourage. So thank you for that. It makes what I do a joy and a delight to be able to not be afraid to speak what God's word says. And so, so in love, Jesus commands the Laodiceans to be zealous and repentant. I think we've covered repentance uh, multiple times through these letters, but what Jesus means in repentance, turn from something and turn to something. To turn away from your sin, to turn away from your self-deception and to turn to Jesus. So for the Laodiceans, their lukewarmness, their self-deception, how they think they're doing fine on their own and they need to turn to Christ and put their full faith and their full trust, their full delight, 
their full treasure in him and in him alone. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn to him. But what about the zeal? I like this word. He, he says, be zealous and repent. Uh, one author writes that their situation demands their earnest attention. It's the idea of zeal. There's an earnestness, earnest attention. In other words, Jesus says that it is time for them to begin to take their life in Christ, their spiritual life, seriously. Being a Christian, a follower of Jesus, is no game. It's not a side hustle. So be zealous, he says. Give it your attention. Well, one final evidence of Jesus' compassion is that Jesus makes the first move. Verse 20. It really is. I mean, it is a beautiful verse. I believe sometimes it can be slightly misapplied. We'll talk about that. But Jesus, the amen, says this to the Laodicean church. Behold. Pay, pay attention. That's, that's what that word means. Look, look, pay attention to what's being said. Jesus says to us, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. So what's happening in this verse? What does Jesus want the Laodiceans, us to understand about ourselves? What does he want us to understand about him, about his character? I don't know if you've ever really thought about it, but food, feasting, meals, that plays a big part in the storyline of Scripture. You see it all the time. There was feasts that were celebrated throughout the pages of the Old Testament, the Passover being one of those main feasts. But even with Jesus, uh, the, the gospel writers go to the way to talk about how he would dine, how he spent his time dining and having dinners with the sinners and the publicans. Jesus used parables about the wedding feasts. He feeds 5,000 himself and then turns around and does it again and feeds 4,000. I like the parable about the impertinent neighbor who's knocking at the door at midnight because he wants to borrow some bread. I need to feed the guest who's come. The fact that, that one of the, the incredible gifts that Jesus gives to his church is the gift of the Lord's Supper, where we commune together over what? Over food, feasting in recognition of what Christ has done for us. And, and all of this uh, culminates in Revelation 19 at the marriage supper of the Lamb. All of these things point to this event uh, where we, the bride of Christ, our salvation will be complete and we will dine with Christ in celebration. So what does it have to do with Jesus' statement in verse 20? The church at Laodicea was blinded by their materialism, their, their self-sufficiency, and they don't believe that they really need Jesus or they don't need more of Jesus. They had plenty of money. They were happy. They were comfortable. They were full. And so the picture Jesus paints is, is he himself standing outside the door of their gathering and knocking. Let me picture it here. So the church at Laodicea is, is, is comfortable. They've got what they need. And the picture Jesus says is, is he's outside of, of the church, the church that he died for. And he's knocking. And he's waiting for someone to let him in. Their Savior, the one who bled, the one who died, their King, the one who rose from the dead, conquering death, all evil. And he says, let me in. I, I, I want to come. I, I want to dine with you. I want you to dine with me. Jesus outside of the church. Knocking and asking to be let in. 
What a tragic picture. Now, this, this verse can be used evangelistically, and it has been, and I think it gives a great picture of that. Jesus knocking at the door of your heart. But the real picture he paints is, is these aren't primarily unbelievers. These are believers. This is a church who have, who have become so deceived. They've become so self-absorbed so caught up in their own lives and in their own world that they do not believe they need Jesus. And so Jesus, outside of the church, is knocking and promising, hey, hey, let me in, and I'll be present with you. Why wouldn't they want the presence of Jesus? Let, let me in, and I'll, I'll fellowship with you. I'll give you my power, my wealth, my life. Just repent, open the door, let me back in. And those aren't the only promises that Jesus makes. He concludes the letter just as all of them have concluded with a promise. He offers the conquerors, those who repent, a series of promises. Here, the Laodiceans will be granted to sit with Jesus on his throne. This, this takes us back to what Chuck talked about a couple weeks ago with Thyatira. What did he promise them? Shared authority. You will rule with me. And he, he promises that, that you will rule with me. You will share in the authority. The Romans would never share their authority. Every day there was proof on the streets of any Roman city that they would not share their authority with the people. But the king of kings, the lord of lords, he says, yeah, I'll share my authority with you. You can, you can reign with me. He's different because he's good. And he's gracious. And in kindness, he shares his authority with those who follow him, with those who depend on him, with those, those who open the door and let him in. He shares his authority with those whom he calls his brothers and his sisters, with those whom he calls his friends. Friends with the King of Kings. Brothers and sisters with the Lord of Lords. So do you have an ear to hear what Jesus and the Spirit say to the church? Do you hear what Jesus is saying to us here at Meadowview today? You see, their main problem the self-deception, the, the materialism are battles that we face every day. Amidst our jobs, families, sometimes even church ministry itself, Jesus gets pushed out the door. He gets pushed to the edges of our life. We call on Him when we need Him. And he's always there because he's faithful and good. But that's not where he belongs. We don't have time for him because we're, we're so self-focused. We, we don't have need for him because we've deceived ourselves into thinking that I can handle this. It's the American way. Listen to this quote by Hamilton. He says, love for our material possessions makes us useless for Christ and his kingdom. Instead, we live for ourselves in self-absorption and self-sufficiency rather than God or for others. Yet material things can never satisfy the human soul. And they leave us greedy for more. And as Jesus tells the Laodiceans, he finds such conduct disgusting to the extreme. I will spew you out of my mouth. We have faith not in him, but in our bank accounts, our sizable income. We become preoccupied with our large houses, garages, rented storage facilities, filled with all the things we thought at some point we couldn't live without. And the sad reality is we, we know this. We, we've experienced this over and over again because we know that the material things that we accumulate, they don't satisfy. We might have thought for a moment, oh, it will. That's the one thing. When I get this thing, that'll be it. I'll be fully satisfied and fully 
happy. But we've been down that road before and disappointed time and time again, haven't we? I got a new desk in my office this week, and I'm really happy about it. And I hope my, my sermons improve by, you know, 20%, somewhere in that range. But it's just a desk. It's just a desk. Augustine said it so well in the fifth century when he said, our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. We can try to find satisfaction in all of the things of the world, but, but it's never going to satisfy. It's not just materialism. It's self-sufficiency that keeps us from turning to Jesus. Instead of pleading for grace, we turn to self-help. I'll figure it out on my own. Instead of being vulnerable, humble, which we're called to be, open, honest about our inner turmoil, slap on a happy face. We grin, we bear it. After all, we can't let others see our weakness, not even Jesus. Not even he should see it. And I wonder today if, if Jesus is standing outside of your life and he's knocking. And if you listen closely, you might hear him say, my friend, my sister, my brother, let me in. Let me help you. Let me be present with you. Let me give you my power in your life. You don't have to, to face this alone. Just let me in. And in pride, some of us will still resist. We'll still turn a deaf ear. We won't have that ear to hear what he says. We will handle our grief. We will handle our bitterness, our anger, our depression, our anxiety, our addiction alone. Let me rephrase that. We will attempt to handle our anger and our grief and our depression and our anxiety and addiction alone. And we will fail again as we have failed time and time again. Because we don't have the power. Let him in. My added notes from this morning. <laughs> really let him in. Open yourself up. Be humble, be vulnerable. Drop the pride, confess your sin. Don't go on in misery. Listen to the echoes of Jesus knocking on the door and it will become more and more distant the more deceived you get. Let him in today. As a church, I want us to ask and continue to ask, are we keeping Jesus on the outside? As a church, we, we are facing challenges now. We'll continue to face challenges. The, the challenges we face right now are actually like kind of a positive thing. We've got growing ministries, growing needs, spiritual needs, physical needs. But will we become deceived and think self-sufficiently, oh, I can, I can deal with this. We, we can handle this. Let's just put another team together to handle that problem. And you know, the sure sign of this self-sufficiency, it's a lack of prayer. You know how I know that? because I'm a very prideful and self-sufficient person. And prayer is one of the last things that comes to my mind when I'm presented with a problem. I'll fix it. I'll put a spreadsheet together. And I will say it, it, it troubles me 
as a pastor that, that one of the least attended events at our church are prayer gatherings, designated prayer gatherings. And I, I, don't, I don't say that because I want to guilt you into coming. I hope you understand my heart there. I say that because it's a symptom of a self-sufficiency or, or maybe it's even a symptom of an other sufficiency thinking, well, there are others who will pray for that. There are others in the church who will take care of that. No, we're, we're in this together. This is the body. And so I want to challenge you. When we have opportunities to pray, let's get together and pray. My friends, what we have to take away from this letter and remember is that our self-assessments are always corrupt. <laughs> they, really, they are. We can't view ourselves correctly. We're poor, we're naked, we're blind. We have to be willing to invite the Holy Spirit to assess our lives according to the Word of God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, the psalmist cried out. We have to also do this, invite other people to assess our lives according to the word of God. That's what the church is about. You mean other people should be judging me? Yeah, they should. Not according to their own standard, but according to God's word, it's what we mean to be a part of the body of Christ. You're meant to be, be, be judging me. Is he loving? Is he, is he joy-filled? Is he patient? We're meant to be involved in each other's lives. Second point I want to make. Consider the compassion of Jesus. Jesus loves his church. He loves all of his churches. Though most of them, as we've read in these letters, they've turned their backs on him. That they follow in other loves, they're worshiping other gods. He still loves them. He still has given his life for them. He still continues to give to them and cry out to them. How we can learn a lot from the compassion that Jesus has for his churches as we relate to other people or people within the church. So I just want to assure you today, Jesus loves you. He does. Don't take that as trite. Take that as an amenable statement. Jesus loves you without condition. And even if you're here today and, and you don't believe it or you don't want to believe it, it doesn't change the truth of the fact that He loves you. And even now, standing outside the door, he compels you in love to open. He hasn't given up on you. He will not give up on you. So to the poor today, he offers gold. And to the naked, he says, I'll clothe you. And to the blind, he says, I'll give you your sight. I think it's also important to note Jesus' great love for our church, yes, this is his church, but he loves other churches too. Sometimes I, as a pastor, can become judgmental of other churches and say, why do they do that? Now, surely you never say that of other churches. It's easy for us, from our assessments, to judge others. That's not our job. And as we look in those situations, we should look recognizing that Jesus loves them with an everlasting love. I think of this specifically today as I think about what's going on in Ukraine and the churches there. He loves them. As they gather together to sing, some of you have probably seen some of the videos of the Christians gathering together, singing, studying the Bible. I can't even begin to imagine doing that 
in the middle of a war. He loves them, he sees them, he will not abandon them. Finally today, I wanna talk to you about zeal. I told you that's a, a great word. And back in the fall when we were moving through Titus, it came up. It it only comes up a handful of times in the Bible. But it came up in Titus, this idea of being zealous, zealous for good works. And today we consider the word again in the context of of repentance. That is, we're we're to be zealous, that, that is truly and wholly serving Jesus. Are you earnest about following Jesus? Are you serious about your faith? Are you zealous for Christ? Zeal is energetic. It's just got that ring to it, doesn't it? Zeal is enthusiastic. Zeal is eager. It anticipates. It's hope-filled. And So this year, 2022, as we emerge from what most of us would call the strangest two years of our lives. I want us as Meadowview to focus on this word as it relates to following our Savior Jesus. To who we are, his church, let us be zealous. So, so let's, let's gain this year, let's work at being zealous for Jesus, passionately pursuing more of Christ by opening up his word and digging in and meditating by by giving attention and time to prayer purposefully, zealously, with enthusiasm pursuing a deeper relationship with Christ. This year I want us to be more zealous for our neighbors, committing ourselves to, to eagerly serving other people people within the church, people outside of the church, using our gifts, our time, our resources to show the love of Christ to others, commit to telling them and sharing with them the good news of Jesus, that if they're poor, he'll give them gold, that if they're naked, he'll clothe them, if they're blind, he'll allow them to see. Ah, zealous to do good in the lives of others. Zealous for World Missions. We'll be discussing this in the coming weeks. In March, the the zeal of Jesus means that that we give. We pray so that others can go. We give and we pray so that the Shadles ministry today in Ayat, Ethiopia, Bethel Baptist is effective. And that people are one to Christ. And people are being discipled in winning others to Christ all culminating in what Jason read for us, that there around the throne, from every tribe and every nation and tongue, you're the one who's worthy. Also zeal for creating more space so that we can be more effective in discipleship. We're gonna talk about zeal as it relates to our increase initiative zeal in praying that God would give us the space, zeal in praying that God would give us the resources to build the space that that we need. There's more I want to say, more I will say in the coming weeks, but today I just want to challenge you as we're about to go to a time of prayer. Begin praying, personally, begin praying about areas in your spiritual life that you might focus on greater zeal this year? Or does the Spirit want you to be more zealous? And and in the coming weeks, what I hope is, I hope to hear from you, and I hope that the church can hear from you that this is an area where I'm gonna focus and be more zealous this year. This is an area I'm excited about. I want us to be able to share those testimonies, give those praises of what God is doing and how he's working in our lives and our families and in our church. And so 2022 is the year of zeal. So be zealous. I'm going to ask you to bow with me this morning. I want to give you just some time to pray. There's a lot. I know this is a a jam-packed lot to think on. My main concern 
is that if you have pushed Jesus to the, the perimeter or the edge of your life, and he is knocking today and saying, let me in, let me help you, let me empower you, that you will open the door now, that you will humble yourself and let him in. Or if you're naked today and you need clothes, you understand your spiritual bankruptcy that you are poor, you're blind, you're dead, and you need life, and you need sight, and you need riches that those only come from Jesus and what he accomplished for you on the cross, and that today you would cry out to him to save you. And if that's you and you need to pray with somebody, you, you, you need to talk through that with somebody, in this moment of silence we're about to have, I just, I want you to be, be willing and able to come and we'll, we'll take you, show you from God's word and pray for you and help you to understand and answer the questions that you have. So whatever your situation today, in this moment, I want to give you opportunity to let the Spirit work, to have an ear to hear what Jesus says. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. Jesus, we thank you that your love knows no end, but you just continue to knock. And I pray that you would continue to knock. If there's anybody here who's never made you a part of their life, that you would continue to show grace and mercy and persist. But Lord, if there's those here who, who we've, we've known you, Jesus, but here lately, you haven't had much of a place in our lives, that today that would change. fill us with a power and a zeal that is undeniable, miraculous, spiritual. And God, as we as a church just consider this year and, and all that you have been doing, but, but looking forward and seeing all that Lord, we believe you want to do, oh God, help us to be zealous. Helps to be filled with hope and excitement. We thank you that we get to be a part of your work of redemption, of what you're accomplishing, and that in the end, we'll do what we, we do every week and what we strive to do throughout the week. We will give you the glory. And we will sing of the name that is above every name, the name of our Savior Jesus. Lord, it's in his name that we pray and it's in his name that we bring these songs of worship, this song of surrender to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you guys...